So today's Bible reading is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 15. And if you have the church Bible, it's on page 241. Okay, 1 Samuel 15. Samuel said to Saul, I'm the Lord... I'm one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Talion, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Canaanites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Canaanites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to shore near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I, have made Samuel, that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites, wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? as much as in obeying the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice, 
and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains, and he thought, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. Let's uh, pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your word, which uh, sometimes shocks us and confronts us. And uh, Lord, it always speaks to us uh, when it's empowered by your spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would accompany these words that we've read, my words as I speak now, that we might be challenged, encouraged, rebuked, corrected, trained in righteousness so that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Lord, more than that, that we might love you with our whole heart and all our being. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I wonder if you've ever uh, heard the expression, uh, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than for permission. You come across it quite a bit. Someone said it to me uh, not that long ago, a couple of weeks ago. And it's the idea that sometimes it's easier for you just to do something and to sort out the complications that come from it later on. Uh, So maybe you want to screw something to your bedroom wall and you know that your parents will tell you that you can't do that. They don't want you to put a hole in the bedroom wall And so you think to yourself, well, instead of asking for permission, I'll just go ahead and do it and I'll sort out the consequences later. Uh, Maybe you want to catch up with a friend for dinner, but you know that your spouse wants you home for dinner. And you know that if you ring up and ask or if you send a message and ask, they'll say no. And so you think, well, I'll just do it anyway and I'll just deal with the consequences after, just 
sort it out later on. Plead ignorance. I didn't know that you wanted me to be home for dinner. Well, it's possible to do that, of course, with people. Uh, It's also possible to do that with God. And that's what 1 Samuel 15 is all about. The chapter begins uh, with a command that to most of us probably seems really quite confronting, quite troubling. God says to Saul through Samuel that they are going, uh, they ha- they go up and attack the Amalekites and destroy them. They're to put to death uh, men and women, children, infants, cattle, sheep, camels, donkeys, everything. They're to show no mercy. Now that's not the first time in the Bible that God has issued a command like that that's really quite violent and quite comprehensive. When the people entered the land of Canaan, there were other times when they were commanded to do similar things, to have that same kind of comprehensive approach to wiping the people out. And because that's so troubling for us, it's worth, before we move on into the rest of the passage, to stop and to think about what God was saying and why that is what he commanded. The first thing to say is that the mere fact that God even gives the command here to wipe out everything implies that that wasn't always the status quo. That is, in other battles, it wasn't necessarily the case that that's what they were supposed to do. They weren't supposed to wipe everything out. But in this particular case, and in some other particular cases, they were supposed to do that. This is a special situation uh, and it requires a special approach. Second, it's important to see too that in this passage God does show mercy. So even though he shows his judgment, he also shows mercy. He shows mercy to the Kenites. We're told in verses 4 to 6 that Saul sends messages to this other people group, to the Kenites who are living in the nearby area and they're told to to move away so that they don't get caught up in the battle and they're not destroyed as well. And the reason that they're shown mercy is because they had shown mercy themselves. They had shown kindness to God's people in the past. So even though there's this complete destruction of the Amalekites, there is also mercy from God. Third, the Amalekites we need to understand, had treated God's people brutally in the past. So in Deuteronomy chapter 25, we have a record of that. Moses reminds the people, he says, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when they came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. So here's the people of Israel, they're trying to move through the wilderness and the Amalekites are coming and picking off the stragglers, killing them. We also catch a glimpse, I think, of their brutality at the end of this chapter where Samuel says to the king of the Amalekites, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. So that is, the Amalekites had been slaughtering the infants and the people of Israel. There is a brutality here among these people. Fourth, Uh, Even though in the days of Moses, God had foreshadowed that judgment would come on the Amalekites, so God had said through Moses that the people of Amalek would be judged, even though God had said that, 
He waited several hundred years before that actually came to pass. There was a period of time God had done that in, in other parts of the Old Testament. He'd waited 400 years before the people entered the land of Canaan. And here again, God gives opportunity for people to repent. Not a few days, not a few weeks, not a few months, not a few years, but hundreds of years for people to turn and receive mercy. But the Amalekites never did that. But fifth and lastly, we also need to stop, I think, and to just accept that what is going on here is horrific and allow that horror to confront us uh, and shock us and terrify us as much as it ought to. And that's because this judgment here, as terrible as it is, is actually just a small glimpse of the broader and more significant judgment of God. However much we're offended by this judgment in 1 Samuel, we need to realise that it's nothing compared to the judgment that Jesus will bring at the end of time. Jesus who came in grace and mercy, who came, as John says, full of grace and truth, who came to heal, to reconcile people to God, Jesus will also come back to judge, to judge the living and the dead and to condemn all those who have refused to turn to him. Countless men and women and children who have rejected God and lived in rebellion against God will be judged for all eternity under the wrath of God. There's just no way to sweeten that, to make that more palatable. And if we try to do that, then actually we sin against the people who need to hear plainly and bluntly that hell awaits those who reject God. Judgment is not inevitable. There is a way back to God through Jesus. But if people reject that way back to God, then God's judgment will be terrible and just and unending. It will be an eternity without God's love and under God's wrath. Jesus describes it as a place of weeping and bitterness. There's no one in the Bible who speaks more about the judgment of God than the Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't turned to God and sought his forgiveness and mercy in Jesus, then let me urge you in the strongest terms to do that today. Don't wait until tomorrow. Tomorrow may never come. Today is the day of God's salvation. Escape his judgment today. Don't think to yourself, oh, well, I just need to sort some things out first and then I'll just get that in order and then I'll return to God. There is nothing more urgent. There is nothing more urgent, more desperate, more needed, more pressing than escaping the coming judgment of God in Jesus Christ. But maybe you have turned to God and found that grace in Jesus and you are, have come out from under that judgment of God, that terrible wrath and judgment of God. And if that is so, then rejoice. Rejoice and give thanks to God. But also remember those around you who 
do stand under the judgment of God, the terrible wrath and judgment of God. They need to hear that message of God's judgment and God's grace in Jesus because eternal and terrible judgment stands before them. And while we keep silent, they go to hell. Don't spare them the terrible truth. Don't offer them the gospel of Jesus as another uh, trinket to add into their comfortable lifestyle, a good option, something they might like to consider that would really add value to their life. Present it to them as something that it really is, the most urgent and the most pressing summons that anyone can receive. The judgment of God is coming on the world for everyone who does not know Christ. There is a way out, but people need to find it before it's too late. So God issues this command. Here it is, a portent of the judgment of God on the Amalekites. It was a simple command for Saul but it is not a command that he and his men can keep. They, instead of destroying everything, they take the king of the Amalekites captive and they keep alive the best of the animals. They're happy to kill off the weak animals. They're even happy to kill off all the people. But they keep the best of the loot for themselves. And the implication as the chapter unfolds is that it is an entirely selfish decision. They like to dress it up as something more noble than that, but it, it doesn't really seem to be. And when God sees what Saul has done, he sends Samuel the prophet down to confront them. At first, Samuel can't find Saul. He's too busy off building a monument to his glory. After all, he's now quite a successful king. He's defeated this nation. His son has helped him to defeat the Philistines in previous chapters. And so he builds a monument to his own glory. When Samuel eventually finds Saul, Saul comes out to greet him. And in verse 13, he says these words, I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Either he was a fool or a liar or both. And Samuel's response is biting. He says, What then is the bleating of the sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of the cattle that I hear? If you've carried out God's commands, why can I hear all these animals that you've taken from the city that were supposed to be destroyed? Saul gives his first excuse in verse 15 it was the soldiers. Was it my fault? They did it, and, and they did it to sacrifice those animals to God. And Samuel just says, enough. He says to Saul, God doesn't want your empty sacrifices, he wants obedience. God had made Saul king. God had given him a simple command. It wasn't hard to understand, hard to do although what we might think was the hardest to do was what Saul and his soldiers did. They killed the people in the city and they kept the animals for themselves. 
Saul couldn't keep the command. And Samuel says in verse 22 to him, does the Lord delight in these burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Samuel says to Saul, God doesn't want obedience, uh, sorry, sacrifice, rituals. He wants obedience. He doesn't want, he doesn't want you to sort of just go through the motions of these ritual religious ceremonies. God doesn't want you to make it up after the fact. He doesn't want your apologies to things you deliberately set about to do. God wants you to do the right thing in the first place. I wonder if you've ever found yourself deliberately setting out to sin against God, knowing that it was wrong, knowing that it was the wrong thing to do, choosing to do it anyway, and yet comforting yourself that afterwards you can just ask God for forgiveness. I know it's wrong, I'm going to do it anyway, I'm going to charge on through... And afterwards, I'm just going to ask God for forgiveness. Maybe even before you did whatever it was that you were going to do, you thought, Lord, please forgive me for what I'm about to do. You know it's wrong to be angry, but you decide to do it anyway. You know it's wrong to yell, but you think, you know what? Stuff it. I remember watching an episode of Foreign Correspondent many years ago now, and they were following South American hitmen who were working for the drug cartels. Uh, and their job, obviously, as hitmen was to go around and murder people that the cartels wanted eliminated. But these were deeply religious hitmen. And so at the beginning of every day, there was a little cave, a grotto, with a Catholic altar and candles set up in the grotto. And every morning before they went out to kill the people, they would go there and they would light a candle and they would seek God's forgiveness for what they were about to do. And the thing is that we can deal with God in exactly the same way as they did. It's ridiculous, isn't it, to think that we could live like that. But that's what we do. That's what Saul did. Samuel says, God doesn't want your sacrifices. He doesn't want your apologies. He doesn't want your confession. He wants your obedience. Yes, we can ask for forgiveness when we sin against God. The blood of Jesus is sufficient for all our sins. And even when we've deliberately sinned, we can come on our knees and ask God and confess that and ask God to forgive us for that. But we can't expect to be throwing ourselves headlong into sin day after day and just expect that God will turn a blind eye and be so excited when we come back in confession and repentance. God doesn't want our sacrifices. He wants our obedience. You can't pray before you sleep with a man or a woman who's not your spouse. Lord, forgive me for what I'm about to do and expect that God will think it's okay. 
You can't overcharge your customers or overclaim on your tax return and then give the money away to the church and think, well, God will be happy with me because 10% went to the church. God doesn't want sacrifices. He wants obedience. In fact, what God wants is not simply obedience. What he wants is our love. It's interesting, a friend of mine has been reading through the story of Solomon later in the Bible, and Solomon too doesn't do all that God wants. In 1 Kings chapter 3, we're told that Solomon was a man who followed God's commands except for one thing. He kept the high places, the people where, places where people would go to sacrifice to God. They, they weren't supposed to be there. He kept those there and he used them as well. And you think, what? what's the difference between Saul and Solomon? Saul who did 99% of what God wanted and just kept a few animals for himself. What's the difference between that and Solomon who did 99% of what God wanted except for the high places? And the answer is that in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3, as my friend pointed out to me, it says this, Solomon loved the Lord. He wasn't perfect. God wants us to be perfect, but he knows that we won't be. And he's given us the sacrifice of Jesus for that. But God does want our love. He does want us to be genuine. He doesn't want us to throw ourselves into sin and just say, look, it doesn't matter. Stuff it. I'm keeping the animals for myself. He wants us to love him. And he wants an obedience driven by our love. So God brings this judgment on the Amalekites. Saul can't obey the command that God has given. Samuel says, God wants obedience, not just sacrifice. Well, after such dire warnings, Saul could have found forgiveness, except that he just couldn't accept responsibility for what he'd done. We've seen one of, Samuel's, uh, one of Saul's excuses already. He says in verse 15 that it was the soldiers' fault. They wanted to keep the animals and they wanted to do it because it was for God. Saul repeats that excuse again in verse 20 and 21. And he continues to maintain that he has obeyed God, even though he obviously hasn't. He says, I went on the mission that God assigned me. That is, I did what God asked of me. Except, of course, for bringing back the king alive. He wasn't supposed to do that. And he wasn't supposed to keep all the good animals either. Except, of course, as he still maintains, it was the soldiers who made him do it. In verse 24, though, Saul finally seems to acknowledge, sort of, that he's done something wrong. He says, I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. But then he adds, I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. He uses that classic excuse. I did it. 
but it wasn't my fault. He later seems to ask for forgiveness in verse 30, but his motivation again seems to be amiss. His motivation seems to be that he'll be honoured in front of the elders of Israel. You've got to come back, uh, Samuel, you've got to bring God's forgiveness so that I'm honoured in front of the people. He's not worried about what he's done with respect to God. He's worried about what people will think of him. He's more sorry for the consequences than for what he's done. And so in this chapter, we see not only Saul's unwillingness to actually do what God has commanded him, we also see his his inability to truly repent. For Saul, it was always somebody else's fault. There was always something else going on. Maybe some of the uh, some of the kids do that at home. Maybe your mum or dad might call you into the kitchen and ask, "Who was it? Was it you who took the last piece of cake in the fridge?" And you know you can't deny it, and so you say, "Yes, it was me, but my brother made me do it." And we can be the same with God. That's what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. God came to them and said, what have you done? And Adam said, it was the woman. And Eve said, it was the snake. Was it my fault? And so maybe you come to God and you acknowledge, you're willing to acknowledge that you sinned. But you never really take the blame It's never really your fault. You were tired, you were provoked, you were upset, you didn't understand, they didn't understand. You did most of what God wanted. You're trying to do the right thing. But God doesn't want our self justifications, He doesn't want our excuses. He wants us to take responsibility for what we've done and own it. Own that we've done it. Own it that it's bad. It's as bad as it really is. And then trust him. You see, we can't be justified by Jesus' death on the cross while we're also trying to justify ourselves with our thin excuses before God. There's a choice we've got to make. It's Jesus and his death and his resurrection for our sins. No excuses. Or it's our thin attempts to try and make our sin with God look better than it really is. And only one of those ways can work. You you will not be able to stand with confidence on the day of judgment before God and say, you know what, Lord... I was just really tired. The people, they just didn't understand. The only justification on the day of judgment will be the blood of Christ, the eternal Son, slain from before the beginning of the world.
I wonder if you're always making an, ex- an excuse to God for something. Maybe today is the day that you need to acknowledge and stop making excuses. Maybe it's not just one thing. Maybe, in fact, it's everything. Maybe you've never actually stood before God and said, you know what, Lord, I've been making excuses up until this day, but there's no excuse. Maybe today is the day that you need to stop hiding behind excuses and stand at the foot of the cross. Maybe today is the day that you need to come before God and say, Lord, I've done worse than I could ever acknowledge and I have no excuses. I claim the blood of Christ. God gave Saul a simple command. He couldn't keep it. And when he didn't keep it, he also couldn't repent. And as this chapter finishes, we see the terrible consequences, not just of sin, but of Saul's inability to repent. God had made Saul king, and now God was saddened by all that had happened. Not that God was caught unaware by what Saul had done. God knew what was going to happen. But God's sorrow simply reflects the fact that he too is affected by human sin and by the tragedy of human sin. The calamity of sin affects us. The calamity of sin also affects God. It affected Samuel as well. Did you see that? He's angered. He's saddened by what has happened with Saul. And he spends the night before he goes to visit Saul crying out to God. Extraordinary, isn't it? I don't know what the longest time that you've ever prayed for is. I'd wager that it's not a whole night. And not even for himself. Samuel cries out for Saul. And so at the end of the chapter, although Saul pleads for forgiveness, Samuel's response is desperately chilling. Samuel says, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. It's that simple. You've rejected God. God has rejected you. And it seems as though there's no way back for Saul. We assume that if there had been genuine repentance, there may have been forgiveness. But without it, forgiveness is impossible. And a line now is drawn in the sand. And Samuel says in verse 29, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul, we discover at the end of this chapter, is unforgivable. There is a limit, this chapter shows, to God's forgiveness. There is a point of no return. For Saul, that was the day that Samuel came to visit him. That was the day in which he could no longer turn back. The day in which God would no longer change his mind about Saul's sin. And there's a limit for God's forgiveness for us too. One day, the opportunity for forgiveness will be over. 
One day, God will have made up his mind and there will be no opportunity to change it. The writer of Hebrews tells us about that. In Hebrews chapter 12, he says, Don't be like Esau. Don't be like Esau who, when he came to find the blessing, he was too late. His father had already given it out. And though he wept and wept, he could find no change of mind. It was too late. Jesus calls that the unforgivable sin. Every sin can be forgiven except that one sin. And that is a sin of dying in rebellion against Jesus. The day is coming when God will draw a line in the sand and there will be no opportunity to change his mind. Eternal judgment, weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a terrible, terrible prospect. But God has not yet drawn that line in the sand. This chapter starts and ends with an ominous warning. It's heavy stuff. Judgment is coming, terrible judgment from the God of heaven and earth who made us and who desires, demands our obedience. Don't trade on God's grace. Don't keep deliberately sinning, expecting that God will continue to be gracious. A day is coming when it will be too late to turn back. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, none of us like to think about judgment. Lord, it breaks our heart. To think of those who will suffer an eternity outside of your grace and love. And yet, Lord, we trust your judgment and your justice and your love. The God who spared no expense to save sinners. The God who set apart his own son in eternity past for the forgiveness of rebels, enemies, for those caught up in the gall of bitterness and unrepentance. For those who live day by day from your hand and yet neither glorify you nor give thanks to you. And yet, Lord, in your mercy you have persisted day after day, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, millennia after millennia, 
standing with your hands outstretched all day long. Why will you die, O house of Israel? But that you would turn and repent. Lord, we thank you for your mercy in Jesus Christ that many of us here have been spared from your just judgment. Lord, we stand before you as people without excuse whose only claim is the blood of Christ slain for us, poured out, the life of Jesus risen from the dead, shared with us the justification, the acknowledgement of his righteousness upon us. Lord, we thank you for that great blessing. But Lord, our heart grieves for those who do not know it. And for those, Lord, who do know it and stand and live in constant rejection. Lord, we grieve along with Samuel. Oh, Lord, that we would pray day and night as he prayed. That we would weep as he wept. That we would mourn as he mourned over Saul. That we would plead for you to show mercy. Lord, we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Perhaps 